Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recognizes February as American Heart Month, and with good reason. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States, with the CDC reporting that one in every three deaths is from heart disease and stroke, which is equal to 2,200 deaths each day. In today's episode of Move Forward Radio, we'll talk to physical therapist Ethel Fries, who explains why these figures are so high and provides crucial advice on how to improve cardiovascular and pulmonary health to prevent these conditions in the first place. As always, input from our guest is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how physical therapists help restore mobility and fitness at moveforwardpt.com. With that, here's our interview with Ethel Fries. Ethel, because the CDC recognizes American Heart Month in February, let's start there by talking about cardiovascular disease. Can you give me a brief summary of what that disease is and who it affects? Well, cardiovascular disease is a disease of the blood vessels that go to the heart, to the brain, and throughout the body. And what happens is the artery gradually clogs up because of deposits of fat, There can be calcium deposits in that clogged area. There can be what we call collagen or connective tissue. So gradually the vessel gets narrower and narrower so that the blood supply to the area, whether it's to the heart, to the the muscles, to the brain, gradually can get cut off, which can lead to a stroke or a heart attack or what we call claudication pain, which is pain usually in the leg that comes on when you walk, and most people will say it hurts when they walk a given distance. And as far as who it can affect, it can affect really people of all ages. We begin to see some of the disease in children, especially with the increase of obesity in young people and children. So the disease can actually begin in childhood. So it is really not a disease necessarily of just adults. Sometimes the symptoms don't appear until you're in adulthood, but the beginning of it can definitely occur in childhood. So let's talk about those symptoms. What are they? Well, the symptoms as far as a stroke, you can momentarily have difficulty finding your words or speaking. It can be sudden weakness in your arm or leg, usually on one side. As far as the heart goes, it can be chest pain, but not necessarily, especially in women. It can be, for women in particular, a real sense of fatigue where suddenly they can't do as much activity as they used to be able to do. It can be feeling shortness of breath. It can be feelings of indigestion. It's not always an easy diagnosis to make. The pain might be in the chest, but it can be in the jaw. It can be between the shoulder blades. It can go down one arm or the other. So any pain above the waist could be from lack of oxygen to the heart. As I mentioned before, symptoms of peripheral vascular disease is frequently pain that comes on with walking. Okay, so you mentioned that kids can get it and essentially not show symptoms. So how do we know? Is it just later on as adults we see the symptoms that we realize retrospectively that they had this disease maybe since childhood, 
or is this something we can identify despite really obvious symptoms in kids and then begin to treat them for it? Unfortunately, we don't always know. We frequently don't know someone has significant vascular disease until they, quote, suddenly have a stroke or they're getting the leg pain with walking or they suddenly have a heart attack. You don't really know for sure the degree of blockage in an artery unless you get a test where they put dye in through the vessel to show it. Now, there are some scanning tests that can be done, but those are not usually done routinely. So unfortunately, a lot of times, it's not really diagnosed until people have symptoms. It's not considered routine screening necessarily. Now, some people can have a stress test. And they can have positive symptoms that come on with a stress test. And sometimes doctors will go ahead and order a stress test on an individual who may not have symptoms but is in a high-risk category because maybe they're overweight or they have a strong family history. So a stress test can be done. But as far as an invasive kind of test to truly document the degree of the disease, that is not done routinely. We'll talk about prevention a little bit later, but in the situations when you know someone has cardiovascular disease, what's the physical therapist's role in treatment? Well, generally speaking, we as physical therapists can't cure the disease in the blood vessels per se, but what we certainly like if someone's had a stroke, physical therapy can play a huge role in helping strengthen the involved side, whether it's arm and leg or either one or both certainly rehabbing them to where they can walk again, be more independent, depends on the severity of the stroke. But rehab plays a huge role in patients who have had strokes to return them to optimal function. When it comes to people who've had a heart attack or have peripheral vascular disease where they get the pain in their legs, physical therapy can also play a big role in training the muscles to be more efficient at using oxygen so that it puts less stress on the heart and also then makes them less likely to have the pain with walking if they have what we call peripheral vascular disease. So physical therapy can play a big role in improving overall endurance and ability to participate in life activities that someone wants to do and not necessarily, quote, cure the disease, but certainly improve function because we can make the muscles work better. So let's walk through a scenario like that. Let's say I have some sort of cardiovascular disease as a side effect of that. I have some difficulty with one of my legs, for example. So when you talk about helping the patient move more efficiently, what would that sort of treatment potentially involve? What are you doing and and what's the goal? Well, the overall goal is to help the patient return to the optimal functional level, whatever that happens to be for that given patient. So overall, the intervention or the treatment might include strengthening exercises, exercises to increase the endurance of not only the muscle, but what we consider the entire cardiovascular system. There's evidence that doing what we call aerobic exercise, walking, stationary bicycling, swimming, those kinds of things can improve the heart function. Even in people who have heart failure, there is evidence that doing an aerobic exercise program not only improves the function of the muscles in the arms and the leg, but also improves the heart muscle itself. And that's relatively new data. It used to be thought that people who had heart failure, exercise could improve the arms and legs in muscle function, but not so much the heart. And now evidence is showing that you can actually make the heart muscle work better 
in someone who has heart failure. Whether it's heart failure or something else, essentially if there's a cardiopulmonary disease or condition, do the treatments differ significantly from one to another, or is it essentially trying to get that person going to aerobic exercises, and maybe you tailor the aerobic exercises differently, but is that usually the general course of action, or could it vary wildly in terms of what somebody's actual treatment might consist of? There can be some variance, but in general, the cardiovascular and pulmonary area aerobic capacity tends to be the emphasis where we put patients on exercise programs with the idea of enhancing their aerobic capacity so that they don't fatigue out as quickly when they're trying to do activities of daily living, walking, doing things around their house, getting to work, participating in social activities with their friends. One area, though, that would be different would be in a patient who has pulmonary or lung pathology, then a little more emphasis might be placed on breathing strategies, breathing technique to help them breathe better, to improve the function of the diaphragm, which is the major muscle for breathing. It may involve helping them clear their airways if they have a lot of excess mucus, as an example. Some people with COPD have excessive amounts of mucus, so we teach them strategies to help clear their airways. People with cystic fibrosis have the same problem, excessive mucus. So that would be a bit of a different emphasis that you wouldn't necessarily have to worry about in the patient who you're seeing who's got peripheral vascular disease. That would not necessarily be the emphasis for them. So there can be slight variances depending on how much of a pulmonary issue they have versus just cardiac or or just peripheral vascular disease. So that's one of the things a physical therapist would look for is to see, does this person have pulmonary issues that require some interventions that would necessarily be needed for someone else? If someone has any sort of cardiovascular problem, and if it's related to obesity, for example, I have to think that one point of resistance or obstacle to that patient might be, well, I can't exercise. For whatever reason, they think they can't. They, they've struggled to in the past. They feel they have another injury or condition that prevents them from exercising. It seems to me the message you're sending is that, that even if people have these cardiovascular challenges, there are still smaller things that a physical therapist can do to improve their quality of life. Oh, absolutely. And you're correct in that some patients have difficulty exercising because of arthritic changes in their hips or knees or ankles. They have joint pain or it's difficult for them to walk very far because of some sort of orthopedic reason or cosmetic is another issue. And particularly people who are obese, they don't necessarily want to exercise in public. That can be a challenge for them. So giving them things that they can do at home what we call sort of low-impact aerobic-type exercises, videos if they have access to television and can see a video that they can do. But there are also types of exercise that are not as difficult on the joint. That's the value of swimming, the elliptical machines. If someone has access to a gym where they can work out on an elliptical, stationary bicycles where they're not having to bear weight through their joints can be an alternative to people who have joint issues. So those are things a physical therapist can look at and give them some suggestions. And sometimes doing strengthening exercises can also help support the joints better so they don't get discomfort and pain as much as they used to. And certainly losing weight can also take off a lot of the compression on those joints and can help them feel much better. Now, when you say strengthening exercises, I'm assuming that it could include actual traditional weightlifting type exercises, but does it necessarily have to? Not necessarily. I mean, there are um, elastic bands 
that we can use. So it certainly can be the traditional weightlifting if someone has access to free weights, which they can do at home, or weight machines, which are typically more often in workout gym places. But certainly there are things that a physical therapist can instruct someone that they can do at home. As I said, elastic bands, they come in different colors, and the amount of resistance someone gets varies by color, so the therapist can make a judgment on what color is best for that patient. There are things they can lift at home, cans of fruit or vegetables, depending on how strong they are. You can also use body weight as a resistance, which is especially helpful in the legs. Just lifting body weight is very helpful for strengthening. So it doesn't have to be the traditional weight machine kind of exercise that, you know, you can get pretty good strengthening with other alternatives. Is the biggest challenge for you as a physical therapist in treating someone with a cardiovascular or pulmonary condition, is it diagnosis? Is it trying to work on aerobic capacity while someone has these other side effects that are preventing that? What's the most common traditional challenge that, that you feel from the physical therapist's perspective in terms of trying to help somebody improve their health? Well, that's not always an easy answer, but I would say probably overall the most challenging thing, and this is not just for patients who have disease that's been diagnosed. I think this is frequently a general population issue, and that is lifestyle change. Understanding that exercise and fitness needs to be a lifestyle commitment and not just a temporary thing like I'm going to go on a diet and once I lose five pounds, I can go off my diet. No, eating well needs to be a lifestyle choice. Exercise needs to be part of lifestyle and making small changes like instead of always taking the elevator or the escalator, take the stairs. You know, I watch people at the airport and I get it if you've got a big suitcase to carry, but I see lots of people with carrying very minimal things rarely taking the stairs. They almost always take the escalator or the elevator rather than the stairs. And so I think making small changes like that can be a beginning of thinking about can I make some small changes that I can get more active and then gradually increase that activity. We're a very sedentary society in large part because of technology that we have, we don't have to work out like we used to because so many people are at their desk working in computers. So things like getting up and walking down the hallway to the printer is a start. Parking a little farther away from the store, as an example, instead of waiting for the car to pull out, it's the closest spot you can possibly get. You know, those are small changes people can make. And I think educating people to begin making those, and as they start to feel better, sometimes they say, wow, you know, I can do more now. And so I think starting off small, instead of starting off where you have to walk for an hour, no. If you can walk for five or ten minutes, that's a start, and then you gradually increase. So I sometimes think we try to make the goals too big to begin with. If you make small changes, then you can gradually increase as you feel better. Let's talk then about prevention. Often we have to be backed into the corner to make a change. We have to have a major health scare that makes us wake up and realize that we need to do something about it. So how do you motivate people to start addressing things that maybe they don't see a problem with immediately? Well, that can be very challenging because what you said is absolutely correct. Frequently, we don't do something until we've gotten a major scare. I mean, think about the number of people who don't stop smoking until they're diagnosed with emphysema or chronic bronchitis, some lung disease, lung cancer, and they stop smoking. Well, unfortunately, 
had they stopped a long time ago, they might not be where they are now. And so that's very difficult because people don't know they have it. You can see if you're gaining weight. You can observe that. But you can't necessarily know that you've got this potentially lethal vascular disease that your arteries are getting more and more clogged because you don't know it until you've got symptoms. So it's a challenge to get people to think about living a lifestyle that decreases their chances. Now, genetics plays a huge role, and you can't change your genes. But those people who have a strong family history of heart disease or vascular disease, they really need to think about what changes they can make because they can't change their genes. And so for them, it is absolutely critical that they think about not smoking, watching their nutrition, eating well, exercising, even stress management. Stress plays a huge role in high blood pressure and in heart attacks. So thinking about managing stress and exercise is a wonderful way to manage stress. And I think we as parents owe it to our children to teach them well. This is the first generation to not live as long as their parents. Because of the obesity and health care issues, children typically will do what their parents teach them very often. And so if we as parents can model for them an active lifestyle, they're far more likely to adopt it than if we model sedentary lifestyle. And so we absolutely need to do better because our young people are not slated to live as long. And that's a real concern, at least for me, and I think it's a real concern for a lot of people in the healthcare field, especially those of us who deal with cardiovascular and pulmonary diseases, that we need to model a more healthy lifestyle. And I think if we can, we might turn it around. And I read not too long ago that obesity in children is starting to level off, and that's a very positive sign. If someone has a history of heart conditions in their family, and let's say they aren't in the high-risk categories, they aren't obese, they don't smoke, they're in relatively decent shape, they're not an extreme workout enthusiast or something like that, is there an age at which point that person needs to really start taking things seriously or get screened or start worrying just because of the heredity of these conditions? It's kind of hard to say for sure, but I know a lot of physicians will go ahead and suggest that women and men, when they get to be 40s or 50s, especially if they have a strong family history, to go ahead and get a stress test. Even if they don't have some of the other risk factors that you've mentioned, they don't smoke, they're not overweight, that they suggest in the 40s or 50s to go ahead and get a stress test and just see if there's any symptomology that occurs when the person gets a stress test. And in my mind, that's not a bad idea to go ahead and get a stress test. Now, unfortunately, a stress test is not always accurate. I mean, you can have what we call a false positive, which means it looks like the person does have some sort of a problem, but they really don't. Or there can be false negative, which means they pass the stress test, but they actually have problems. Most people probably have heard of people. I've certainly had friends who had a negative stress test and were out running and dropped dead. So it's not a foolproof system, but I personally, I would advise people who do have a strong family history to insist on getting a stress test once they're in their 40s or 50s, just as another way of getting some information that might protect them or direct their treatment so that they won't get the heart attack. In terms of how these conditions are treated, has there been significant change over the last five years, ten years? Is this an area where change is happening rapidly or because it's difficult to walk back the effects? 
have we kind of plateaued, and, and where would you like to see treatment of these conditions, especially from the physical therapy perspective, evolve? Well, probably the biggest changes I've seen are more in the medical area, lots more medications. That's one of the reasons that hypertension has gone down a bit because we've got a lot more medications that treat hypertension. Unfortunately, hypertension, frequently people don't know they have it until they suddenly have a stroke. So if people know they have high blood pressure and if they take their medications, they really do decrease their risk of having a stroke. So certainly in the area of medications, that's been a big change. Another area that has changed are the surgical techniques. There are more advanced techniques in doing bypass surgeries and what we call stents that help keep coronary arteries open. So there have been a lot of surgical advances. What I would like to see is people becoming more proactive so they don't have to have the cardiac surgery. And that's where, as I've mentioned, living a healthy lifestyle, getting a good exercise program put together, and that's one area that a physical therapist can be a big help. You know, looking at a person's posture, their muscle strength, their muscle length, what is their basic aerobic capacity, and there are exercise tests that a physical therapist can do to get a baseline measurement of the fitness of this person and get them set up on a well-rounded program that works on muscle stretching, muscle strengthening, their posture, their breathing if they need, and a good walking or swimming or some sort of aerobic program that fits that individual. And if they can get set up on an exercise program and then they could check in periodically with their therapist to make sure they're doing it or tweaking it as they need it, I really think that would help prevent some of the, the advancement of the pathology such that they need more medical treatment. You know, we'd like to keep people from having to have bypass surgery and stents and all those kinds of things. If we can prevent it in the first place, it's a much better way to go. What's the minimum physical activity that somebody should get either in a day or a week? So if I walk for 30 minutes, five days a week, is that enough or should I really be aiming higher? Well, in general, the recommendation for most adults is 30 minutes most days. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 30 minutes together. You could do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at noon, 10 minutes at night. Now, if you want to be a top, top fit person, then 10 minutes three times a day is not as good as 45 minutes or an hour. But if you want to get a baseline fitness, that's a good way to start. And you know, people are very busy. Time is probably the number one reason people say they don't exercise. I don't have time. So, you know, walking during lunch, they can shorten their eating time and get out and walk. And I think having a friend to do that with you is a real motivator. Having someone say, come on, let's go for a walk, even if it's 10 minutes, you can hold each other accountable. And I think that's extremely helpful to have a buddy to do it with. Now, the overall recommendation is try to get about a 1,000 kilocalories of energy expenditure each week. 2,000 is even better. And there are ways to figure out about how many calories you're burning. You know, you can go to Google and you can type in caloric expenditure and find how many calories on an average you're going to be burning doing walking or biking. And that can give you an idea of about how many minutes you need to do a particular activity to burn X number of calories. But in general, about 30 minutes most days of the week, five, six days a week, is what's recommended. 
as far as I'm concerned, anything to start with is great. You know, it's it's better than being the couch potato. And as I said, even getting up and walking down the hallway in your office to go to the printer or every hour just getting up and walking in place, a few jumping jacks if you can, that's a start. And it, it does burn some calories. Any activity you can put into your day counts towards your total weekly expenditure. Particularly for someone who might think they're at risk, you mentioned several things along the way. I love the tip about committing with a friend to exercising more, but if you really had to summarize the three to five things that someone needs to think about to improve their cardiovascular health right now immediately and start working on that, what would those major things be? I think that certainly increasing your activity level in any way you can. Most physicians say if you do what we call a moderate exercise program, which is walking or if you look at how difficult it feels for you, what we call exertion, as long as it's no more than somewhat hard, that's considered fairly safe and moderate. So like a walking program is safe for most people. So seeing ways you can increase your activity, watching what you eat, avoid lots of high fatty foods, fruits and vegetables are a way to go and lean meat. Chicken is an example. Stop smoking if you do. And managing your stress so that you don't get uptight, nervous, angry, hostile kinds of behaviors because that has been shown to be risky. You know, again, getting to be as active a lifestyle as you can do given who you are and your overall health and any issues you might have and your time, that to me a real important place to start. Excellent advice. Ethel Spreeze, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. That's it for this episode of Move Forward Radio. If you think you might be at risk for a heart condition, please follow Ethel's advice and be proactive. Contact a physical therapist or your physician today. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.